where do you want to be? It's one of those questions that we get asked in different settings. Uh, Maybe you've been in a job interview and uh, uh, somebody's asked you, where do you see yourself? Where do you want to be five years from now? Or or maybe some of us uh, think of a question like, uh, where do you want to be? And we we think about our our relational life and, and perhaps we think of the question in terms of where we want to be in our marriage, say, a year from now. For there are others of us, especially over these last few months, and if you're anything like me, uh, maybe the question uh, is, is much more simple than that. It's, it's more about a geographic location, and, and, and maybe your answer like mine would be, I want to be on vacation somewhere. Uh, I, I'm tired of being at home in these, in these same four walls. Uh, I, I want to be at the beach. Uh, I want to be uh, in the mountains I want to be somewhere other than on my couch. And then uh, there are maybe some of us who even this morning are, are, are watching right now from your living room, and maybe somebody in the room where you are is thinking to themselves, well, I just want to be back in bed. Whatever our answer to that question might be, oftentimes it really just exposes the fact that, that we think that there is some other place that in some way will be able to bring us a greater sense of fulfillment, a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of joy, or or, or that will simply be a, a place where we can have more fun than perhaps where we are right now. And of course, there's nothing wrong with asking that question, especially as we look out toward the future. And yet, it is something that we often crave for uh, a place that we think will give more of a sense of fulfillment than we have right now, and yet we frequently look for that in all the wrong places. Pastor Rich last week kicked off our new series that we're calling New Beginnings as we travel together through uh, portions of the book of Zechariah and then a few weeks through the book of Haggai and the Old Testament. And uh, I think it's a really significant series, especially at this time in the midst of where we find ourselves. Uh, When we think of this idea of new beginnings, we are, of course, hopeful that uh, very soon we'll be able to begin to uh, gather back together and have a little bit of a greater sense of, of normality in some respects. And so as we are thinking about that, this, this period in the history of the people of, of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the days of the minor prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, I think it's a very significant time for us to focus on these. Because for them, it was a time almost like of a fresh start, a new beginning. Because after many years in captivity, in exile in a foreign land, They had come back into the land, and we see in these books God is dealing with his people as they become re-established again and set on this new course. Well, this morning, as we think of this idea of, of, of where we want to be, as we think of this idea of new beginnings, what we're going to see as we turn in God's word together to Zechariah in chapter 2 is that uh, God gave through the prophet Zechariah a message to his people to point them to a place that their soul most desired to be because it is the place in which they would find deepest and greatest satisfaction. 
And it's a place, it's a place that they probably didn't expect. And so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab that and join me in the Old Testament book of Zechariah in the second chapter. You can find Zechariah right at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, when, uh, if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far, and if you back up from Matthew's gospel, then uh, you'll be in the book of Malachi, and Zechariah comes immediately before the book of Malachi. In Zechariah chapter 2, we read these words beginning in verse 1. It says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, this is actually the third vision that the prophet Zechariah has received, a a message uh, given to him from the Lord to speak to the people. Uh, Here in Zechariah chapter 1, we see two of these visions, and then when we come to Zechariah chapter 2, we have now this this vision of this man with a, a measuring line. And what we see here is that God promises to prosper and to protect Jerusalem with his presence. So the first scene here is of this, uh, actually this man is an angel, we, we discover, and he has this measuring line, and, and Zechariah sees him with it, and he says, where are you going? And the answer that he gets is that he's going to measure out the, the length and the width of Jerusalem. And of course, it's not because God doesn't know how big the city is, but rather it is because he is uh, preparing to share this message with Zechariah for the people about what God is going to do in days to come. And so we see this vision, and there's this angel there uh, that he is talking with, and then the angel with the measuring line goes forward, and it says, and another angel came forward to meet him. Now, it's a little bit difficult when we find ourselves in a book like the book of Zechariah. The prophetic um, style of this book uh, can sometimes make it in places hard to follow. And we'll see that in elements not only this morning, but in the next couple of weeks. But what seems to be happening here is that this first character is an angel. And the second character is what we often refer to or theologians often speak of as being the angel of the Lord. The pronouns here in this passage seem to indicate that this is not, no, this is not a mere angel, uh, this second angel, but rather is the Lord himself, what we sometimes call either a theophany or a Christophany, and it's referring to the pre-incarnate Christ himself standing there with this message that is to be given first to Zechariah and then through Zechariah to the people. One of the reasons that most scholars think think that that's the case here in this passage, as it was, for example, in Genesis 18 with Abraham, as it was in in, uh, the book of uh, Judges chapter 6 with Gideon and other places in the Old Testament, is that the message that is given, this character, this second angel, this angel of the Lord, seems to indicate that he himself will be the one to accomplish the promises that he is about to unveil. And it seems uh, clear uh, that he is speaking from the position of being the Lord himself. 
And so uh, he, uh, this angel of the Lord speaks to the first angel and says, give to that young man, give to Zechariah this message. And what we find in verses 4 and 5 that I read to you just a moment ago really serve as a summary of what the rest of this chapter, verses 6 through 13, are going to then unfold in more depth. And, and there are three aspects to the, to the promise, to the proclamation that is engaged in this message, as we see it in verse 4 and 5. You, you'll notice that the first thing is that Jerusalem, so the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and the livestock. And so there is a promise that is being made that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is going to be re-inhabited, is going to be rebuilt, and in fact it is going to be restored in such a way that, that it's not even going to be able to have physical boundaries, physical walls to it, because it will be so large, because there will be so many people who will be dwelling there. It'll be as if it goes on and on. Now, here in Zechariah's day, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, have been in exile. They have been gone for a long time, and only a very small remnant had remained in the land. Zechariah is ministering somewhere around about 520 B.C., and uh, a few years before, maybe about 16 or 17 years before, an edict had been issued which was allowing the, the Jewish people to return to their own land, to return back to the land of Judah and to Jerusalem. But the truth of the matter is, even though they were allowed to go back, very few of them had actually done that. And Jerusalem was, uh, was really a pile of rubble. Uh, the, it was very sparsely populated, and so we see this proclamation here of this taking place. In fact, what we see here uh, in these verses and in the verses that follow, even to this day, have not been fully, literally fulfilled. And so, uh, there, is, uh, uh, there are godly people who will look at this passage and they will uh, point to it as being something that is ultimately fulfilled, uh, in a spiritual sense, as God will bring the nations, the multitudes to Himself through Christ. And this is kind of representative of the church age that we are in, and uh, pointing ultimately to the eternal state in heaven with the Lord. While there are others who uh, seem to look at this and some other passages and suggest that this is speaking about a time that is still yet to come at the return of the Lord Jesus, uh, where Jesus Himself will literally reign on the earth for a thousand years there from Jerusalem. But whichever of those views that, uh, that you take, the promise that is given here is something magnificent. It's something incredible because not only will the city of Jerusalem, does it say here, be restored and there'll be such a great multitude that there won't even be any walls to it, uh, but there's a second aspect to this, uh, and it says uh, that that I will be to her a wall of fire, declares the Lord. And so, we see this idea of protection, uh, the Lord being there surrounding His people. At this particular time in history, to have a city without a wall meant that it was a very vulnerable place, that it could easily be open to attack. Uh, but the Lord says that while there will be no physical walls because the, the, the boundaries will be so vast, the population will be so great, I, the Lord, will be like a wall of fire, protecting and demonstrating my presence with my people. 
We think of how when the people of Israel came out of captivity in the land of Egypt, we read about that in the book of Exodus, how the Lord goes before them in the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them and to protect them and to demonstrate the reality of His presence in their midst. And that idea of presence is the last part of this. Uh, He says, not only will I be a wall of fire to her all around, declares the Lord, he also says, and I will be the glory in her midst. And so we have this beautiful promise, this beautiful picture of a restoration that the Lord will bring about for his people and how he promises that he will protect them with his presence. And so while... The Jewish people were accustomed to this idea of the physical, visible presence of God with them in the temple. Now he is speaking about the fact that he will be there in their midst. He will both surround them and be with them throughout the whole of this holy city. But as I've already indicated, this is in a sense an introduction to then what he goes on to say in the rest of chapter 2 here. And what we see is how the people are to respond, what they are supposed to do as a result of this incredible promise and how God is going to dwell amidst his people. And so we see that beginning in verse 6. And, and as we turn there, what we're going to discover really is that the presence of the Lord is the place of blessing. You see, the instruction is given that we are to return from what looks like the place of plenty to the place of God's presence. Look with me at verse 6. The the instruction is, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So again, we see the sense of promise there, but we also see a command. We see an instruction. Uh, It's related to a removing of themselves from where they currently are to where they need to be and where ultimately their heart, their soul longs to be. They are to return from what looks like the place of plenty to the place of God's presence. Notice here this uh, command is given to those who are still dwelling in Babylon to return to Zion or to return to Jerusalem. Uh, You see, the period of the exile that they have been in as a people was not something that was short-lived. In fact, it had been a period of time that had lasted about 70 years 
uh, in 605 BC, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar first came and ransacked the city of Jerusalem. And they actually came on several more occasions, causing devastation and taking people captive each time until ultimately in 586 BC, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and left the city of Jerusalem, bare, and, and, and the people were carried off into captivity. And they've been there for such a long period of time that many of those went in, who went into captivity have had children of their own. And their children have had children. So now oh, we have grandchildren that have been born who have never known anything but what it was to live in Babylon. They most likely spoke the Babylonian language. They were familiar with that. And so when the edict went forth, saying that the Jewish people were permitted to return back to their own land, that they could go back to Jerusalem, some of them went. But many chose to stay. And here the Lord is calling them to return, to return to the city of Jerusalem. But, but let's be honest, we can, we can kind of understand why they would have wanted to stay. After all, Babylon was the metropolis of the day. Anything that you wanted, you could get in Babylon. It was a place of prosperity. It was a place of trading. It was a place of, of, of wealth. It was a place of entertainment. And Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was a mess. Uh, Jerusalem was just a pile of stones for the most part. In fact, some years later... Even after the ministry of the prophet Zechariah, we, uh, we find that a man by the name of Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he returns with a, with a burden from the Lord to rebuild the walls of the city. And we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2 that as he goes out one night to assess the situation, he is riding his horse, but he cannot even get his horse between the gaps between the rubble from the fallen buildings and the fallen walls. And so even for many years after when Zechariah is speaking, Jerusalem isn't exactly the place that you want your family to up and move to. And yet, yet the command is given, up, up, and flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. He says, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. See, it would have been very easy for people to look at the situation, to look at the exile, and to put it all down to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had decimated Jerusalem and the land of Judah, and that he was the reason for their exile. But that's not the case at all. The scriptures are very clear that it was because of the unfaithfulness of the people that the Lord, in his mercy, disciplined them by sending them into exile for this season. And now he is regathering them. What a beautiful picture that is of how he does this. And what we really see here is this idea that despite appearances, the presence of the Lord is the place of blessing. It would have been so easy for them to continue in Babylon, but the Lord actually warns them, not only should they come back to his land, uh, because that's where his presence is, and that is where he is doing this new work, uh, but because Babylon itself will ultimately be destroyed. In fact, he talks about this here in this passage, and it had been foretold by the prophet, of, uh, prophet uh, Habakkuk about a hundred years before. Habakkuk was struggling because he looked around and he saw the wickedness of the people of Judah and the people of Israel. And he said, Lord, uh, how can you allow these people to continue in this wickedness? 
And the Lord answers him and says, I am going to discipline them, and I'm going to send the Babylonians to discipline them. And now Habakkuk was, was amazed. He's like, whoa, wait a second, Lord. What do you mean you're going to send the Babylonians? How can you possibly send somebody who's way more wicked than the people of Judah to discipline the people of Judah? And even there in Habakkuk, in, uh, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 8, the Lord explains that after the people have been in discipline and exile in Babylon, that the Lord will then overthrow the Babylonians. In Habakkuk 2.8, it says, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. And we see that same idea here in Zechariah chapter 2, especially verse 9. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who have served them. And so the Lord is doing precisely what he said he will do. But since the presence of the Lord is the place of blessing. Uh, what he is saying to the people here in the days of Zechariah and really to us today as well is that we need to be on guard. We need to be careful that we do not uh, try to uh, make our home in a place that seems to be attractive, that seems to promise to offer all these sorts of comforts that will be satisfying to us, but ultimately that lead to destruction. And you know what? We live in a world that uh, has so many enticing calls and voices to it. We look around and we see what others are doing, and it's so easy to, uh, to feel settled in the things that are so common in our culture. To feel uh, like our heart is, is captivated by the sort of things that Babylon had to offer. The sort of things that uh, John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress uh, described as being the very nature and culture of what he called Vanity Fair but things that ultimately make promises that cannot fulfill, things that ultimately try to entice us and yet leave us unsatisfied. And as the author of the book of Proverbs says, it is that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so we have to be on guard. And The Lord was calling his people to return to him because the presence of the Lord is the place of true blessing. In fact, as this passage continues to unfold, we come across a verse in, in, in verse 8, and as we look at the vision for uh, all that God is doing in future days, we see that in the presence of the Lord, we actually find our true value and identity. I love this. While verse 8 is, is somewhat complex in the language that is used here, and there's some debate over how we should actually word it because the Hebrew is very difficult, what is clear is the statement that whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know, what a beautiful image that is. Uh, this passage speaks of the zealous affection of God for his people. This image is one that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, and again in Psalm 17, verse 8, he speaks of his people as being the apple of his eye. And it's still an expression that sometimes we use today, isn't it? Uh, maybe a father will say of his young daughter, she's the, she's the apple of my eye. It, it, it speaks of something that is uh, so 
precious to us. It speaks of, uh, of, of something that we see of such great value. And I love the fact that here we see the Lord describing His people this way, speaking of tender care, of zealous affection for something that is precious and prized. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have come to know Him and to receive the new life that is found in Him, the forgiveness of sins and a reconciliation with God the Father, that you have been declared a child of God. And how does God look upon His children? As the apple of His eye. That you are loved, that you are precious, that you are valued. As it says in 1 John, behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished unto us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you, don't take your sense of identity from what anybody else in this world may have to say about you. Listen to what the Lord God Almighty has declared over you, that you are precious, the apple of his eye. And as this passage continues, as I've already read, and it speaks about the gathering of the nations and the people coming together, we see this idea here, and it is beautiful. The Lord says that he will dwell in their midst, and they shall be my people. They shall be my people. See, in both this announcement of us being the apple of God's eye and of us being His people and dwelling in His midst, we see that part of the blessing that comes from the presence of the Lord is a true sense of our unique value, our God-given identity and worth. You see, the problem was that in, in, in Babylon, they were but exiles. In, in Babylon, they were just, uh, just another set of people, and, 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 and they were living under the cultural identity of, uh, that was built on what you could accomplish, that was built on, on where you fit into a societal structure. And we still have that sort of idea today. We, we, we chase after all sorts of other things, thinking that we will find satisfaction in them, but we live in the midst of a culture that promotes this idea of evolution, which says that you are but a random mutation with no design, no purpose, and no significance. Or we live in a culture uh, that right now in the midst of the struggles that we're facing in this, in, in this country is trying to redefine things, uh, even things that are, are troublesome and ought to cause our heart to grieve, but by saying that there are those who are simply oppressors and those who are the oppressed. And that is what your identity is, one or the other of those. Or we live in a culture where, where, where the LGBTQ plus community and lobby are, are, are trying to suggest that you are defined by your sexual expression, by your sexual desires, not by your biological makeup or by anything else, but by that one aspect. Whereas the God of the Bible, the God who says to his people, you are the apple of my eye, the God who dwells with his people and draws them into his presence says, no, I have made you 
And since I have made you, you are made with value and worth and dignity, not because of anything that you have done, not because of what you have accomplished, not because of the color of your skin, not because of anything like that, but because I have stamped my image on you, and as God, I have declared over you that you are precious. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning. There are some of us who are longing for a place to belong. There are some of us who are longing for a sense of purpose. There are some of us who are hungry to know that we're loved. And God says to his people, up, up and flee. Up and flee from all of those things that you have been looking to to try to give you purpose and meaning and significance and value. Up and flee from all of those things that promise one thing but can never deliver and come Again, into my presence. Because you are the apple of my eye. Because you are loved. And in my presence, it is the place of blessing. If you've never experienced what it is to be able to say, I know that I am a child of God that he loves me, that I am forgiven in his sight, then today I, I want you to know that that invitation that Jesus offers to come to him and experience new life, a fresh start to become a new creation, is available to you. You see, when we were alienated from God because of our sin, God didn't write us off. Instead, he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came and bore your sin and my sin in his body on the cross. That's what we were celebrating in communion a few moments ago. He died our death. He paid our debt and he rose again victorious to life so that this new and living way could be opened so that by faith in him, you could be adopted into the family of God, forgiven with a new beginning and that you might know what it is to experience the presence of God. If you want to know more about how to take that step to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ, if you want to know what it is to become the apple of God's eye, you can click on that little prayer button uh, on your screen. Somebody there would love to interact with you about this and pray with you over it. But as we think about what this passage is calling us to, as we think about this idea that the presence of the Lord is the place of blessing, this calling from God to return to Him, really, we have to wrestle with the idea of what is, what is the presence of the Lord? Certainly, as Jeremiah, as Zechariah, rather, was, was ministering, there was a call to physically up and leave Babylon and physically return to the city of Jerusalem the representative place of the presence of God amidst his people. But even for us today, there is still this sense of the presence of God that we need to flee to. What does that look like? Well, there's a sense certainly in which uh, God's presence is everywhere. In fact, we speak of God as being omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere, that there is no place where he is not. But there is also a special sense in which the scriptures speak about our ability to enjoy the presence of the Lord, an experience of the fullness of his nearness in our midst. 
For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But as I was thinking and praying about this idea this week of the the presence of the Lord and how we experience this, uh, there's a couple of aspects we see throughout Scripture, which I think is is very helpful in light of this passage. Uh, The first is we need to understand that the presence of the Lord is a place of obedience to His commands. I mean, think about this. Think about the, uh, the book of Jonah. Some of us are familiar with that. And in the first chapter of the book of Jonah, over and over again, it says that, that, that Jonah didn't do what the Lord called him to, and he sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. It's not that he could run away from God, really, but it was a place of disobedience for him. And so the sense of the presence of the Lord is really a, a, a place of obedience to his commands. And there are some of us who, if we're honest right now in our lives, there, there are some things in our lives that we know are out of keeping with what God would have us to do. There are some places in our life where we are being disobedient, where we are allowing ourselves to dwell in sin. And the Lord would say to us, up, up and flee from those things. You think that they bring pleasure. You think that they bring significance. You think that they bring fulfillment, but true blessing. True blessing, true freedom, true joy is found in my presence, and my presence is a place of obedience. Return. There's also a sense in the Scriptures in which we see that the presence of the Lord is a place of communion with Him, where we, where we get to gaze upon and dwell upon His grace and His greatness. You know, we think about this, uh, again, all through the Scriptures. There's this idea of coming before the Lord and gazing on Him and filling our hearts with awe and wonder. And, and for some of us, it's simply that idea of, uh, of getting into His Word and, and, and quietly reflecting on the greatness of who He is. It's of lifting our voices in, in song as we're driving along and listening to praise and worship music, perhaps. It's, it's, it's of getting quietly with Him in prayer and, again, refocusing our hearts. So there's this idea of enjoying the presence of the Lord. You know... Just a few days ago, I was uh, sat on my couch at home, and uh, my youngest daughter loves to play games. She came in, and she sat next to me, and uh, as I was sat there, I was just scrolling through something that wasn't really important on my phone, and I was doing this for several minutes, and she was just sat there, didn't say anything, didn't do anything, just sat right next to me, and suddenly I was convicted over the fact that I might have been in her presence, she might have been in my presence, but we weren't enjoying that presence. And so I put my phone away, and I said, what do you want to play? And we got to spend some time playing some pretty intense pickup sticks. And you know what? We got to talk together, and we got to laugh together, and we got to enjoy one another. And, and, and one of the ways in which we experience the presence of the Lord is, is by making space to simply be before him and to be with him. And then we see that the presence of the Lord throughout Scripture is also frequently connected with being a place of fellowship with his people. There's something significant, there's something beautiful to being in the midst of the people of God and us enjoying that fellowship together. We often think of, uh, of our walk with the Lord as being a really personal, individual thing. It's something here in the United States we like to uh, focus on, our 
personal walk with Jesus, our personal relationship with Him. But Scripture actually is abundantly clear uh, that we are not saved so that it can be you and Jesus. We're saved and we're brought together in this thing called His body, the body of Christ, the church, so that together we can build one another up in Him, as it talks about in Ephesians in chapter 2, in verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints. Uh, You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. There's this idea in which we experience the presence of the Lord in the fellowship with His people. It's one of the reasons why being a part of a small group, especially during this season, has been so vitally important to many of us. And if you're not already a part of one, I want to encourage you to get plugged in. But it's also a, a reminder of the fact that for some of us, kind of the message, if you like, of this, of this passage or an application of it is that we need to up, we need to up and flee, and we need to come back together when it is safe and wise to do so. You see, some of us have grown kind of comfortable with sitting on our couch and watching the service online. Some of us like the fact that we can do it in our pajamas with a cup of coffee in our hand in the recliner. Some of us like the fact that, hey, we can do this, and it leaves us more time to do other things the rest of the day. But while it may not be wise or safe for everybody to immediately come back, Uh, we have to be careful that we don't become like the people of Judah so many years ago where we become settled and comfortable in the land of Babylon. We don't become settled and comfortable where we are and reject the special fellowship of the presence of the Lord in the midst of His people. So I would encourage you as you, as a family, uh, are, are praying about this next upcoming season that you do not allow the convenience of staying at home to be the decisive determination as to what you do, because the presence of the Lord is the place of blessing, and one of the ways in which we experience that richly is in the midst of His people. And of course, we know that even as this passage points to, that there is going to be an ultimate sense of His presence when we will see the Lord face to face. You know, during those long years of exile, it probably felt to some of the people like God was absent. And it may be that in this season that we've been through, you've been struggling to have a sense of the presence of the Lord with you in the midst of it. But this passage closes in verse 13 saying, be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And it's a reminder of the fact that even though it may have seemed like he was absent, even though it may have seemed like he was quiet, which he certainly wasn't, that God is on the move that He is doing a new thing, that He is a God who fulfills His promises, and we should stand in awe of Him and in obedience to Him. And indeed, we ought to be in awe. Because this God who rules and who reigns over kings and cosmos is calling us to flee from those empty things that we try to build our life on. He's calling us to uh, flee from those things that we feel comfortable in making our home in and instead to return to Him, to know and to enjoy His presence because the presence of the Lord 
is a place of, of blessing. So let me ask you, do you know what it is to enjoy the presence of the Lord? What is it that you need to up and flee from in order to return to his midst and enjoy that presence for yourself? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that your promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. They are true. They are sure. They are certain. And we thank you that you are a God who delights to dwell in the midst of your people. Forgive us that we often content ourselves with lesser things, that we get comfortable with the things of this world and we, we treat your presence as something that we dip in and out of rather than dwell and make our home in. Teach us to know you. Teach us to delight in you and to discover that the presence of the Lord indeed is the place of blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks once again for being with us this Sunday morning. Uh, we certainly hope to uh, uh, see some of you live and in person beginning next Sunday as we engage in this soft opening. But uh, even if you're continuing to uh, join in at home, uh, we are so thankful that you've taken this time to join us and pray that uh, you will indeed know the joy that comes from the presence of the Lord. Let me close us with this. May you this week know the power of of the Lord to strengthen you, the peace of the Lord to still you, and yes, the presence of the Lord to satisfy and sustain you in whatever you do. Amen. God bless, and have a wonderful week.